You've been listening to the weekly sermon from the Vine Church in Madison, Wisconsin, a spirit-filled family that makes disciples and plants churches among neighbors and nations through declaration and demonstration. For more information and service times, check out our website at www.thevinemadison.org. Well, good morning, Vine family. If you have a Bible, please open it to Luke chapter 10. Matthew, Mark, Luke, third book in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke chapter 10. And today we're going to be looking at the parable of the Good Samaritan. In light of recent events in our world, we've felt that it's very important to take at least two weeks in a row to try to orient our hearts on how to think like a Christian, how to think biblically about what's swirling around in our world today. And so that's what we're going to attempt to do for the second week in a row today. The Bible was set in a context that was maybe in some ways more racially charged than what we find today. And the Bible speaks to it. The gospel spoke to it back then. It speaks to it today. So today, what I want to do for for many of us, I want us to break down what might be an unlikely text that deals with the heart of injustice, the heart of racism. And that's the parable of the Good Samaritan, Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. And so we're just going to work our way way through it, and then I'm going to try to give us some points of application for those that name Jesus as Lord. Look at verse 25. It says this. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. So put Jesus to the test, okay? We've seen the opposition in our series in the book of Matthew, and that's also a theme in the book of Luke here. Jesus is being opposed by people that don't like him. And so this lawyer stands up and wants to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, he said to him, what what is written in the law? How do you read it? So he orients him toward the Old Testament. And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Verse 28, and Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So in this context, a lawyer would have been someone who studied the law of God, okay? He's an Old Testament guy, Old Testament expert. And people would have come to him to to know about what to do in certain times and places and experiences. Like, what does the law say? The law is given to guide us. What does the law say? So this guy asking Jesus this pointed question is probably a revered man, respected man, important position. He's also probably a really prideful man. And we learn that from the text. He doesn't come with humility in his heart towards Jesus. He comes with pride in his heart to try to show Jesus to be a fool, to put him to the test. But on the surface, he's asking a really good question. Look again at verse 25. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit an eternal life? 
Well, in one context, that could be a great question. In another context, if your heart is prideful, that's a bad question. But see, Jesus is brilliant. He knows that this guy does not have pure motives. So oftentimes what Jesus does, and we see him do it here, is he answers a question with a question. He's not going to be backed into anybody's logical or academic corner. So he says to the law expert, you tell me, verse 26. And so the guy gives, in a sense, what's a great, what's a great answer? Let's look at it again. Verse 27. What does the Bible say? Well, this is what the Bible says about how to inherit eternal life. In one sense, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and, with, and your neighbor as yourself. This is just straight from the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. Leviticus 19, verse 18. This lawyer, he just shows Jesus. He knows his Bible. He's memorized it. So in a sense, he gives a great answer. And Jesus says, in essence, that a boy, great answer. Go ahead and do that, and you'll be good. You want to live by the law? Go for it. See, see how that works out for you. And it's true, if you could pull that off perfectly, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and perfectly loving your neighbor as yourself, if you can do that, you'll be saved. Because salvation demands perfection. It's not grading on a curve. It's perfection. So if you can be perfect, this is what Jesus is saying, if you can be perfectly perfect, then you'll be saved. Keep in mind, God's the judge, not, not you, not us. So this guy, you can sense him getting a little nervous now. And that this prospect of being perfectly perfect according to the law might not quite be within his grasp, even arrogant as he is. And so look at what it says in verse 29. <clears throat> he says, we, we see his <clears throat> heart progression here. But he, verse 29 the lawyer, desiring to justify himself. See that? That's, that's important. Okay, I got to figure out how to, how to manage this. I got I to figure out how to justify myself. I got to figure out how this is attainable. What does he say? He says to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So he wants this to be manageable. See the arrogance here? He wants to justify himself. He doesn't want to have to cast himself on the mercy of God. He doesn't want to cast himself on something exterior to what he can handle, to what he can conjure up in his own good works, in his own sense of, man, I got it all together. He doesn't want to have to confess his neediness. He doesn't want to have to confess his powerlessness. That would be beneath him. So he says, in essence, um, so who exactly is my neighbor? Who exactly, Jesus, specifically, directly is my neighbor? See, Jesus, I want you to spell this out for me so that I can know what to do and I can have my little to-do list and, and fit it into a nice little system that I can control. Can, Jesus, can you define these boundaries for me a little bit better? Because, see, that way I won't have to cast myself on your mercy and neediness so who exactly is my neighbor, Jesus? 
Another way to think about this is what he's asking is, who are my non-neighbors? Like, who are those that I can exclude? Who are those I can avoid due, due to historical difference, misunderstanding, different preferences, different cultures? That's what this guy is asking. And so Jesus is now going to give this lawyer a front row seat to his own heart. And I think if we're all open and honest and asking God by the power of his word and his spirit to do a work in our hearts, there might be something for us here too. Especially in light of current events. So Jesus the masterful storyteller that he is tells this guy a story. Let's take a look. Verse 30. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three, he asked to the lawyer, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So let's walk through this text. Verse 30. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed leaving him half dead. So Jesus is talking to people that would have known the local geography. And there's this notorious roadway in this part of the world that Jesus is speaking about from Jerusalem down to Jericho. And it was kind of the Wild West. No law enforcement, lots of places for, for robbers and thieves to hide along this path, rocky cliffs and, and nooks to, to hide in. And so robbers would just wait along that road. And then attack people and steal their stuff. It's not hard to figure out. So Jesus is staging this scene in a familiar way. And so verse 31, now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. A priest comes through first. Now who's a priest? A priest was a, in, in the Old Testament life of Jewish people, a priest was a mediator between God and man. He was God's guy. He was God's leader. He knew the law of God, that he should help someone like this. Have mercy on them. Micah 6, 8. Do justly. Love mercy. Walk humbly with God. But 
Evidently, that didn't sink very deep into this guy's heart. Verse 32, so likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. Now, who was a Levite? A Levite was the priest's helper, for lack of a better term. Think of it in modern terms like a pastor and a a worship leader. The Levites were the worship leaders. They too would have known the law of God. But again, maybe that was all talk and, and no walk for this guy. So then verse 33 comes, and Jesus He says the unthinkable, but a Samaritan. Now, I have to stop right there. You know how there's certain words, when you hear them, it just causes your ears to perk up, maybe in a positive way or a negative way? So for a first century Jewish person, the word Samaritan would have caused your ears to perk up in a very negative way. Now, there's a big backstory here. And for us to understand what Jesus is getting at in this parable, we have to know this backstory, okay? There would have been some awkward tension in the word in the, in the room when Jesus said Samaritan. So hold on for a second. I'm going to just take you on a real quick journey through some Old Testament history so that this parable can land on our modern ears in the same way that it landed on the ears of a first century Jew. So why did Jewish people hate Samaritans so much? Well, a few hundred years, think a few centuries before the time when Jesus was saying this. So maybe, you know, this was 2,000 years ago. So think maybe 2,500 years ago, 27, to be more exact, about 2,700 years ago. There was an event that happened in the life of God's people, and that was the exile. And so God's people were, were chosen by God, saved out of slavery from Egypt. God gave them, over the course of many, many years, a land of promise for them to live, for them to rule and reign in, in, in God's world, to be a city on a hill, to be a light to the Gentiles to be God's specific chosen people, to walk in obedience before him in light of their salvation from Egypt. Problem, they failed over and over and over again. They had wicked rulers, wicked kings that led them into all sorts of horrible offenses to God. And they just failed to live in light of their identity as God's saved people. Worship false gods over and over again. And so finally, God says, I will not be mocked. And he brings in the nation of Assyria in 722 BC to judge his own people. And the Assyrians come in and they pull them out of God's place. They pull them in what's called the exile out of their land of promise. And they're dragged off to Assyria. Dark days for God's people in the Old Testament. And so many years pass, and over time, the Jewish people are allowed to return to their homeland. The problem is, for many Jewish people, a lot of those Jewish people chose not to return to their homeland. They stayed in Assyria. 
and they intermingled. And they, and they chose to worship uh, or make a, a new religion, mingling Assyrian worship and Jewish things. This is who the Samaritans were. And so for the mind of a Jewish person, track with this. If we got kicked out of our land because of disobedience, what are we going to do to like restore our place to the former glory? Well, we got to ramp up the obedience. And so if that's your mindset, then you look at your former brothers and sisters who chose to stay in Assyria and worship false gods. And they create this new kind of race of people with a new religion called Samaritans. So in the Jewish mindset, that's the height of treachery. That's the height of betrayal. They were traitors of the highest order, and so they hated them. We see this in John 8, 48. This is very interesting. The Jews come to Jesus in opposition to Jesus, and what do they do? They call him a Samaritan. They use the word Samaritan as pejorative. They say in John 8, 48, aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? Like those are about synonymous Demon-possessed and Samaritan. Like, they're trying to insult Jesus in the most horrible way, so they use the word Samaritan. So if you're a Samaritan, by definition, I hate you because you probably look a little different than me, because you intermarried with Assyrians, you changed our religion, with Assyrians, yeah, you, you changed our religion from the true worship of Yahweh to this other different heretical religion. So that's the backstory here of why what Jesus is doing is so revolutionary. Let's go back to verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, the guy that was beat up and bruised and bloody on the side of the road, when he saw him, what did the Samaritan do? What does it say? It says he had compassion. What a shocking turn in the story. Jesus is making the hero of the story the most hated guy in the story. It would be like if Jesus was talking to a group of white supremacists. Right here he would say, but a young black man as he journeyed came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Jesus is pushing buttons right here. He's pushing racist buttons right here. He's pushing on the definition of, well, who really is my neighbor? Now watch what the Samaritan does in in Jesus' illustrative tale here. Verse 34. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. So oil and wine, the stuff's not free. His compassion was costly. Then he set him on his own animal. So He set him on his own animal, meaning the Samaritan, he chose to walk. That's a sacrifice. But also, along this same road, with all these same dangers, he's now in a position of being very vulnerable. 
He's more of a sitting duck as he's caring for this guy. And he brought him to an inn and took care of him, verse 35, and the next day. So what does that imply? It implies that he spent the night taking care of this guy. He's probably up all night. Someone who was this injured would probably needed care all through the night. When you're beat up and bruised, sleep does not come easy. Verse 35, and the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So what's two denarii? Two denarii is two days' wages. So in modern terms, maybe a day's wage for some people is 50 to to $100, maybe more, maybe less. But let's just say this guy put in the pocket of the innkeeper $200. He says, whatever else you require, I'll, I'll pay it. So this is a graphic depiction of mercy. The Samaritan is upholding the law of God. The Samaritan, Jesus says, is upholding the heart of God, demonstrating the heart of God, as the Jews should have. He's showing mercy. This is straight Old Testament religion. What does Hosea 6, 6 says? It says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. If you go through all the religious motions but have a heart that's unmerciful, God says, that's not the point. The contrast here couldn't be more stark. So he says to the Old Testament expert, this lawyer that's questioning him, he says, in essence, you're asking the wrong question. The question is not, who is my neighbor? The question is, am I Neighborly. Neighborly meaning one who doesn't look to skin color or race as a determining factor for those who are going to be candidates to receive my compassion. See, Jesus knew this guy's racist heart. And he knew that this guy was, in essence, just asking, well, can God baptize my racism and can I still be saved? Like, who really is my neighbor? Like, who are my non-neighbors? Who can I exclude? Who can I not be responsible to love? Like, do I really have to love and show compassion to my Samaritan neighbors? Verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. See what Jesus is doing here? He's exposing this guy's heart. He's showing this guy that his lack of compassion comes from a racist heart. He's exposing the pride that fueled his racism. He's giving him a full frontal look to his pride. He's he's showing him that, that his need to figure out true salvation is not 
something that's easily managed if you really understand the depth of your heart. So you think salvation is manageable? You think your racism is manageable? You think your lack of compassion is manageable? He's saying, let let me just, if, if you're willing, let me do a little heart surgery. Let me demonstrate your need for repentance. So what about us? What about us? How does this apply to us? I think Jesus wanted this guy to see, and he wants us to see, that if you truly know God, if you truly know who God is and what he has done to save you through the cross where he laid down his life for our sins so that deserving sinners can be shown mercy by being the perfect substitute in our place so that he could manage for us what we could not manage on our own. And then he rose again from the dead to defeat death, the penalty of sin. If you know that, and you, in light of that, repented and turned and trusted him and want to follow him, then that compassion, that message of compassion for you will overflow to others. Christians will be marked as people of compassion. Compassion for people that are very different than us. People that have a different experience than us. People that come from a different culture than us. People that have different hurts and pains and agonies because of their story that might be different than yours or mine. People we're tempted to ignore. People that we're tempted to marginalize. People that we're tempted to be fearful of. People we don't understand. See, Christians have to be people of compassion. Let me, let me just remind you again, why? What's the fuel and the fire for Christian compassion? A fuel and a fire that never burns out. Listen to this quote. Did not God make humanity his neighbor? Seeing a world of sinners robbed of their true nature, stripped of divine ideals, wounded by sins, unable to rise, God came down in the incarnation to where the sinner was and gave the world a corresponding example of the merciful Samaritan. Christ, through his death and resurrection, covers our nakedness, binds up our wounds, and heals them with a balm extracted from his own broken heart. Not only so, but he puts us in a place of safety, provides for our needs, and has promised to return and take us to himself. So you want to live neighborly? You want to overcome a prideful, racist heart in whatever form it's found? It comes through this vision of the gospel. This vision will fuel and humble you by the power of the Holy Spirit to look more like Jesus and the Good Samaritan. So this obviously applies to the time we live in right now in light of the murder of George Floyd 
and many other stories that are circling around right now. So many of us are asking, what should I do? What should I do? And if you're not asking that question, maybe you should start. As a white guy with a very white upbringing, speaking to a church that is probably 95% white with a sprinkle of beautiful diversity, I know there's, there's much for me to learn. This morning, I mean, there's so much to say. But I just want to, in one sermon, there's only so much you can do. In two sermons, there's only so much you can do. Now, I want to suggest three things this morning to answer the question, what should I do? Number one, I want you to be careful. And I want you to think about identity. See, if you don't know who you are, you won't know what to do. Or what you do will have no permanence. See, action flows from identity. It'll never have any endurance if it's not that way. That's why we've reminded you of the gospel this morning. The gospel tells you who you are if you've repented and believed in King Jesus. And who you are then, based on who your identity, will tell you what to do. Identity leads to action. So if you forget who you are, you'll forget what to do. So if you're a Christian this morning, you know who you are. You are a person of compassion because you've been shown ultimate compassion by the God of the universe in the gospel. Number two, I want you I'm speaking now to majority culture people. I'm speaking mainly to the white people at the Vine Church. What I want you to do, if you're a majority culture person, I want you to seek to educate yourself about the history of the black experience in America. Okay? If you are a majority culture person, I want you to seek to educate yourself about the history of the black experience in America. We learned about slavery in high school, right? We've heard some things about Martin Luther King Jr. Can we go deeper than that? Because the story goes much, much deeper. Do you know about the great migration? Do you know about redlining? Can we articulate anything about the story and the details of why so many of our neighbors in Madison and around the country are hurting right now. It's connected to a story, and that story has details. It's complicated. Education, my word, we live in the day and age of the internet, the age of information, so this is easier than it's ever been. Let me just give you one example of how this has really affected me through seeking to educate myself and listening to people's stories that are not my own. I've learned in the last few years that what's very, very normal, if you have kids that are about to come to the driving age and you're in an African-American home, you sit those kids down 
and you have what's known as the talk. And this is not the birds and the bees. It's nothing to do with that. In an African-American home, what's very typical when your kids are approaching driving age is you sit them down and you train them very clearly about if you get pulled over, here's how you not get shot. That's normal. So why is that so jarring for me? Because I've got a 17-year-old who's driving and never once has the thought ever crossed my mind that I need to sit him down and have a talk with him about how to stay safe when you get pulled over by a police officer. So what that illustrates to me is that my experience is very, very foreign to somebody else's experience. And there's different stories that fuel different feelings. And that can sober me up and go, okay, so I think I live in a different world than other people, and we live in the same world. You know what I'm saying? Like, that sobers me up to have some compassion, to want to be slow to speak and quick to listen. I need to educate myself more on the story of my neighbor's Why is it that so many African-American people in our culture right now are feeling like the guy in our story, beat up, bruised, bloody, laying motionless on the side of the road? Why do they feel that way? See, it's connected to a story. I need to learn that story. I need to educate myself. Because then it might increase my compassion. As my compassion increases, I'm going to try to make some sort of a difference, perhaps, to see more justice done in this world that we live in. Our God is a God of justice, and his people will be a people of justice. Justice and mercy, they always go hand in hand. So Vine family is just a small thing that will just take a small amount of time. There's a thousand choices to make. I put on the important channel on Slack a few days ago three things that I think can help you journey to educating yourself. So if you haven't consulted the important channel and saw that post with the three choices I gave you, I just ask you to do it. Just pick one. Just start with one, a book and two videos. Just start there. And just ask God, would you help me? And that leads me to the last thing I want to say. I want you to know who you are. That's the first thing. So be careful. Know who you are. Action precedes identity, or I mean identity precedes action. I want you to educate yourself. And then thirdly, I just want you to pray. I want you to pray. I want you to pray, pray, pray. So often in in something like this, this this is a window into my heart. Man, I want to do something. And for me, the doing can translate into control issues. And what I soon find is this this issue is way over my head. This is not something I can control. But I do believe in a God who hears us when we pray. And he is intimately involved by the power of his spirit in the details of our individual lives. And so as opposed to me running out the door ready to save the world, I'm going to turn to the one who already has saved the world and his power is living.
right now, and I'm just going to ask him to help me. I'm going to ask him to provide. I'm not going to assume that I can save the world, but I am going to assume that I can show up and be available. And then whatever he wants to do with me, I'm going to respond to that. So I'm just going to lead us in a prayer right now as we close. That I, I think the spirit of this prayer, I think if we could embody the spirit of this prayer as a church, I just think some things would happen. I don't know what it's going to be. I'm not in control. God is in control. This is not passivity. Don't ever for a second believe that prayer is passivity. Those that don't know our king, King Jesus, will hear prayer as passivity. That's not true. That is not true. Prayer is not passivity. Prayer is the first step to what God always wants to do in the world. So this is the spirit of the kind of praying I would love to see us engage in. Let's pray together as a church. Lord, here we are. These problems are so over our head. They run so deep. They seem overwhelming. They are overwhelming for us, Lord. Who can control, Lord, the, the, the sinful heart of human beings? Who can change hearts but you alone? Lord, would you help us know what we're supposed to do? Lord, we say that we are open and willing. Lord, we know you love justice and mercy. Help us know how that's supposed to play out in our world. Lord, would you make us people of justice and mercy? Lord, we don't know specifically what we are supposed to do right now, but we say that we're willing because we know who we are and we know what you have done and we know that we're people of compassion. And so would you deepen our compassion that looks like a diversity of expressions based on who we are and where we are and who we're with? Lord, would you provide Lord, our hearts cry out for those that are hurting so much deeper than maybe I am based on my experience. Lord, we, we know there's people that are uniquely hurting. Would you help them? Lord, we want to see your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, we desire mercy more than just jumping through religious hoops. Lord, would you make us the kind of people, Micah 6-8 people, that want to do justly and want to love mercy and that want to walk humbly with you. So we humble ourselves before you. Lord, we, we know we're not in control. We open ourselves to you by the power of your spirit and say that we are available. We ask for you to provide and give us the faith to walk through those doors that you show us. Would you give us doors to walk through, God? Would you provide that answer to what we're supposed to do next? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.